Hello everybody, uh, my name is Rafael Rocco and I'm a thoracic surgery resident at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Stephen Cassavy about thymectomy. Dr. Cassavy is a professor of surgery here at Mayo Clinic with over 200 peer-reviewed publications, many of them in the field of minimally invasive thoracic surgery. He is as well vice chair of the Department of Surgery here at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Cassavy, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Rafael. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So let's start off with a case scenario. A 35-year-old female comes to your clinic with symptoms of lethargy and right-eye-tosis that get, gets worse every night. She is otherwise healthy and does not smoke. A diagnosis of mastenia gravis was made. She is currently on prednisone, but would like to hear about surgical options as her condition has not yet ameliorated. What other information or workup would you ask for? And could you briefly talk about the classification systems that are used in our practice? So once again, thanks for having me on this. I think it's an important topic that doesn't often get discussed. Uh, myasthenia gravis, one of our icons here at Mayo Clinic in thoracic surgery uh, in 1951 was quoted as saying it, it was uh, Theron Claggett, O.T. Claggett, uh, said it, it's of considerable interest to find a relationship between a mysterious disease such as myasthenia gravis and a mysterious gland, the thymus gland. And I think he, he encapsulated the issues here. It's a very nebulous area and we'll talk about why it's been so nebulous and continues to be. I think we're gaining a little bit more illumination into the area of myasthenia gravis and the surgical role and other uh, treatment options. Uh, but it still remains uh, rarely discussed and, uh, and sometimes poorly understood area of, of medicine. And uh, I think this is a great opportunity to hopefully shed a little bit more light. So your question regarded uh, classification systems, and I think those are always a good place to start in terms of a disease process. With myasthenia gravis, it's a... Uh, a disease affecting the motor neurons and, and so uh, the classification systems are generally based upon symptoms and, and, the, and the different uh, large categories of symptoms. The most famous or the longest standing classification system is the Osterman classification system and for the most part it's been uh, adapted to the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America, the MGFA classification system. So they're, they're, they're often overlapped and sometimes there's confusion because of the, there's two of them. But in general, stage one or, or, or class one Myasthenia Gravis is, is symptoms that are only ocular. So uh, relating to the eye, diplopia, uh, ptosis, uh, things like that. Class two is when you have more general muscle weakness, but it's mild and, and certainly not incapacitating. Uh, class three is moderate symptoms, and, and this is where it becomes difficult between mild and moderate uh, to, to really parse out. But again, these are not incapacitating, um, but they st start to include things that are a little more central or bulbar, like oropharyngeal symptoms. Class four is severe and uh, incapacitating. Sorry about that paging. It's real. It's real world here. Uh, 
class four is severe and incapacitating weakness, uh, and class five is really the the myasthenic crisis. It's life threatening, often requiring ICU uh, and often mechanical ventilatory support. Uh, it's a respiratory predominant issue uh, that, that requires immediate attention. And then where, where myasthenia gravis, the MGFA classification uh, expounds on it, it's that they have class 2A, class 2B, class 3A, class 3B, class 4A, class 4B, and the A is really limb and axial versus B being more bulbar or pharyngeal and respiratory. Um, but for the most part, it's one is ocular, two, three, and four are, diff are increasing grades of severity of muscular weakness, be they axial or in, or, or in the limbs versus bulbar or respiratory, and then five is, the, is that um, dreaded uh, myasthenic crisis. Those are the classification systems that are most used, most accepted, most studied, and, and, and should be known by those people who uh, work in this area. Um, how would I work this particular patient up? She has a, a very classic presentation uh, for myasthenia gravis. She's a young woman. Remembering that myasthenia gravis affects about 20 to 40 people per 100,000. Uh, that's the, uh, the prevalence in, uh, of it. Uh, and uh, it occurs in two peaks of ages in the 20s to, to 30s, and then later in the 60s to 80s. Uh, and, um, and so her, class, her presentation is fairly classic. How we would work it up is we would do a uh, history and physical examination, which uh, sounds as if she's gone through that, and you presented to me the uh, salient points. And then there are some uh, other investigations imaging which would include a CT scan of the chest and that's when we come back to Claggett's statement of the relationship between myasthenia and the thymus gland. What we're really looking for is uh, whether there's a thymoma or not and uh, we know that in uh, 10 to 15 percent of patients with generalized myasthenia gravis uh, we find uh, an incidental or perhaps, as we've come to know, related thymoma. Uh, the other tests that we would do is basic lab, blood lab tests, which would be done just to make sure we're not missing anything elsewhere. But related to myasthenia gravis, we would look for antibodies. And, and really, the disease is uh, caused by an antibody uh, an antibody attack on the motor end plate um, at the neuromuscular junction. And, and uh, these um, anti-acetylcholine receptor antibodies, the, the acetylcholine, which is the neurotransmitter that's released by the nerve and the synapse to uh, communicate with the motor end plate, has a receptor on the motor end plate. And in myasthenia, you have an antibody that, that the classic antibody that will block it. Uh, it's an IgG1 or an IgG3. And, and um, it, it has a membrane attack complex that, that actually results in damage to the neuromuscular junction and, and lack of function. Um, so um, 
we would test, do serologic testing for these uh, myasthenia antibodies, and there's a number of them. There's binding uh, antibodies, modulating antibodies, blocking antibodies. Uh, those are the main anti-acetylcholine receptor antibodies that we're uh, testing for, and and variously they will show positivity or, or not in uh, in the um, in patients with myasthenia. There, we'd also test for anti-striated muscle antibodies, and these are antibodies against the components of the skeletal muscle. Uh, these tend to be much more associated with patients who also have a thymoma. Also that we would test for is the so-called anti-musk or MUSK antibody. This is a muscle-specific kinase, and it's a receptor tyrosine kinase, and it's more pronounced with bulbar weakness. Um, it's a receptor tyrosine kinase that's essential for the neuromuscular junction development. Um, there's also more esoteric tests that are increasingly being uh, identified and developed and studied. One that I'll mention is, or a couple that I'll mention, the anti-lipoprotein related protein 4 or LRP4 antibody. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a protein that's present at the postsynaptic membrane and can be, uh, for lack of a better verb, attacked by the antibodies. And an anti-agrin antibody. And, uh, these are the ones that you start searching when you have someone who you truly believe has myasthenia gravis. Uh, but they test triple negative for those antibodies that we've talked about uh, just now. So those are the those are the blood tests, the serologies, and finally we would uh, get uh, EMG done. And really, the most sensitive is the you can do either a repetitive stimulation of the muscle, and this is a really sensitive test for um, for myasthenia gravis. The, the even more sensitive test is the signal fiber electromyography, uh, but with a more this the more the increased sensitivity of this test, you end up with a, a much more technically demanding test and, and and one that's more user dependent. So this is one that you want to have done by people who do this on a regular basis and understand the what is being looked for in terms of neuromuscular block, jitter, and fiber density uh, in these patients. So that's, those are the main tests that I would do. Great, thank you for that, sir. So let's say that her lab values were within normal limits. Uh, she is antibody positive, and CT demonstrated what looked to be a non-invasive three centimeter thymoma. EMG is consistent with the diagnosis. So my next question is, what are your indications to take a patient to the operating room? And would you have taken this patient to the operating room had you not seen a mass on the imaging? So when we start to consider an operation, uh, we have to start uh, discussing readiness for the operation. The, the important piece about uh, thymectomy in myasthenia gravis is that it, um, the response to the removal of the thymus gland is not immediate. And so the first thing to remember is that a patient with a myasthenic crisis is not someone who you want to bring to the operating room to remove their thymus gland. One, it's dangerous because they are in that myasthenic crisis. And two, they won't get the immediate response. It's not like revascularizing the heart. Uh, 
this is something that they that over time and sometimes that's measured in months and perhaps years uh, that 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 positive response to the thymectomy occurs. So uh, a myasthenic crisis is a contraindication to thymectomy. Once we move along uh, past that, the the issue to discuss is is how do you assess a patient for their readiness for it. Um, it's important to, to make sure that their myasthenia is well controlled. And one of the tests uh, that I do, apart from the physical examination that we've just discussed in the history, is I will, when we're talking about, when we're getting close to doing an operation and I'm looking for stability, I will do pulmonary function tests and with specific attention to the diaphragm as the, as the muscle of interest. And to test the diaphragmatic muscle strength and, and muscle involvement, we do things called bugle pressures, or maximal inspiratory and maximal expiratory pressures. And what you're looking for is to see how, uh, how well the muscle, how well the diaphragm as a muscle is working. And if those are well below normal, often they'll be below normal in a myasthenic patient, but well below normal in them. Uh, less than 40% of predicted, um, then you, you have to start talking with your neurologist about optimizing this patient further, either with IVIG or plasmapheresis preoperatively. You want to optimize this patient so that you, you um, are not going to um, be more likely to, to be dealing with a, a myasthenic crisis or difficulty like that postoperatively. It's probably, and I know I'm talking a lot here, Raphael, but uh, it's probably not a bad time to talk about why we do it, uh, like where do we get the, the notion to do a thymectomy for patients with myasthenia gravis. Um, and not to go too into arcane stuff, but at the, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, in fact in 1901 in, in Frankfurt, uh, one of the pathologists there, Weigert, uh, noticed that he found a thymic tumor in a patient uh, on postmortem who had myasthenia gravis. That's probably the first reported uh, association between the two. And, and um, a series of uh, autopsies done at Mayo Clinic reported in 1917 supported that there was some sort of uh, association between thymic abnormalities, uh, which were seen in about a half of the patients with myasthenia gravis at the time of post-mortem. Uh, this was Dr. Bell at, at Mayo Clinic who, who uh, published on that. And over the years, um, you know, you had reports like uh, the famed Dr. Blaylock, who uh, reported thymectomy in a non-thymomatous gland with a subsequent resolution of their myasthenia gravis. And, and cardiac surgeons especially congenital cardiac surgeons would note that the thymus is something that we rid ourselves of at the time of, a, of cardiac surgery with impunity. Um, and uh, it's probably why Dr. Blaylock uh, didn't think twice about removing the gland. Um, but over the years, there's been increasing observational data that would suggest that removal of a thymus, whether with a thymoma or non-thymomatous in patients with myasthenia gravis would result 
variably in improvement. And the problem, I think, in that was that, as we noted before, it's not immediate. So those observations had to be done by people keenly with a good memory. Uh, and it's not in all patients. Uh, removal of the thymus does not affect a, a, an improvement in symptoms in, in all patients. Now that, in the past, and perhaps still in, in the current day, but hopefully less, but in the past was probably due to uh, less than accurate diagnosis of, of the neuromuscular condition and attributing myasthenia gravis to what may have been another condition. And so those patients wouldn't be expected to improve with thymectomy. Uh, but thankfully, we have people who've devoted their lives to the study of myasthenia gravis, like John Newsom Davis, who was uh, a UK neurologist who really devoted his entire life uh, to the study of myasthenia gravis. He originally was a jet fighter pilot, uh, but uh, uh, thankfully de decided to uh, um, turn his life to uh, medicine and to the study of neuromuscular disease. Um, he established a very prominent laboratory and did a lot of research uh, at a number of different institutions in, in London and then finally uh, a superb research institute at Oxford University and um, was really the spearhead for the um, myasthenia gravis thymectomy trial, which was a randomized trial that I think is very key to discussing thymectomy and the role of thymectomy. What they did, and just to briefly summarize it, and they, they reported this in the New England Journal, um, I think in 2016. Uh, Gil Wolf from Buffalo was the first author, I believe. But uh, I think he would uh, be the first to say that John Newsom Davis was the, the, the um, foundation of this. Unfortunately, uh, he, uh, Professor Newsom Davis died tragically in a car accident in Romania in 2007 and didn't see this uh, uh, um, published, but um, his work lives on. Uh, it was a study of uh, across 36 sites that occurred in the early 2000s, so I think 2006 to 2012. Um, it involved uh, 120 some patients who were randomized to, uh, these, these patients were, uh, had myasthenia for less than five years in duration, were 18 to 65 and had no thymoma. They had generalized symptoms, so class two to class four and they were randomized to thymectomy plus prednisone or just prednisone. Kind of like uh, best medical management versus thymectomy plus best medical management. And um, it was a fascinating, uh, or it was an intricate and well thought out design because it was blinded to the investigator. They actually gave the patients a standardized rugby shirt for them to show up at the at their appointments, so that you couldn't tell whether they would have, they had a sternotomy or not, and the people who were post-operative uh, in investigating these people, they didn't know whether they were operated or not. They were also unrelated to the people who had evaluated them and and, and provided them with long-term care, either surgically or uh, neurologically, and so they were separate. And um, the, 
the outcomes that we looked at were uh, the average quantitative myasthenia gravis score and the average prednisone dose requirement over three years, the every other day prednisone dose. And what they found was, was that the surgical arm had a, had a better average quantitative myasthenia gravis score. In other words, they had symptom improvement, statistically significant and, and clinically relevant. They also had a lower prednisone requirement, 32 milligrams on average every other day versus 54 milligrams on average every other day, which is, was also statistically and I think clinically significant. Also, uh, some lesser findings of the study were that uh, there was less requirements for immunosuppression with things like uh, azathioprine in the surgical group, 17% versus almost half in the uh, in the, in the uh, medical arm of the study. And uh, there was really no difference in complications, although the um, medical arm of the study did, uh, the prednisone alone group had more symptoms related to medications that they were given. And there were less hospitalizations for exacerbation in the surgical arm, 9% versus 37% during the time of the study. So I think what this study showed was the first time uh, in, a, in a properly well-done multi-center study that thymectomy uh, does provide uh, symptom uh, improvement, if not relief. Uh, but I think, it, again, an important thing to tell your patients is that it doesn't, uh, it, it's not in everyone and it's not immediate. And so patients uh, after thymectomy remain on their dose of, of mestinon or prednisone or other immunosuppressant medications and over time as their symptoms allow under the supervision of their local neurologist they, they, they attempt to wean those medications and, and observe the, the ability to wean those medications. Again, a long answer but hopefully covering important points to uh, that, that really in the last decade or so have become available to us and, and have shone uh, important light on a disease that is otherwise nebulous and poorly understood. So my indications to get back to it would be a patient who is otherwise fit and able, who has, um, uh, you know, we would want to know whether they have a thymoma or not. If it's an invasive thymoma that would uh, affect our, in other words, it, it, in a thymoma that appears to be beyond its capsule on imaging, then that would potentially affect our approach, but it wouldn't affect our, our willingness to go ahead and, and remove the thymus gland. I, um, but st stable disease and um, uh, surgically fit. Thank you. So for you, sir, what are the various techniques for a thymectomy and what is your preference? So there are many different ways to approach a thymectomy. The standard one is the uh, typical transsternal thymectomy that, that uh, through the same route as uh, the initial cardiac surgeons, the cardiothoracic surgeons would have done like Blaylock over the years. And that was in fact the, the standard used for the myasthenia gravis uh, thymectomy study. But we've come to understand with improving te technology and improving technique that the thymus can be uh, 
appropriately and adequately removed through less invasive means. Um, that I believe is somewhat uh, debated and still and controversial. Um, but a simple way of looking at this, and the Myasini Gravis uh, Foundation of America, the MGFA, have provided a, a, a sort of a classification of thymectomy. And T1 is the transcervical thymectomy, uh, initially championed by Papa Testis in New York and then later uh, famously by Joel Cooper in Toronto and in St. Louis and Philadelphia ultimately and, and Shafka Shavji in Toronto. Um, it's, a, it's a very good technique um, and with the addition of a five millimeter scope can be even improved upon. Um, it's not for everyone uh, and I think in the day of now of transthoracic vats it may be, uh, may be less used. So T1, or so-called MGFA T1 is the transcervical. T2 is the VATS approach, and sometimes called VATET, which is the ET at the end is extended thymectomy. I think everyone adds that extended, and it's, it's uh, in the eye of the beholder. But the T2 is the VATS, and that can be either left side or right side, and there's advantages and disadvantages to both, or, or bilateral. Um, uh, there's also a sub-xiphoid, and I don't know that that's been uh, yet classified in the MGFA classification, but it's probably within that realm of T2. T3 is the standard transsternal, and T4 is this uh, extended Uretsky, who was uh, an excellent advocate for the treatment of Mycenae Gravis surgically in New York, and his um, he's passed on that mantle to Josh Sonnet, a good friend in New York, and who has taken that on and speaks knowledgeably and, and uh, with great experience on, on Myasenia Gravis as well. Um, T4 is, that, is what we would call a transcervical plus tr uh, transsternal and in an effort to um, be certain that the upper poles of that H-shaped gland that is the thymus are addressed as well completely. So those are the, the, the four uh, options and I think just like with golf you're better with more clubs in your bag um, being facile with uh, some if not all of these approaches will make you a better thymic uh, surgeon uh, it, Henry Kissinger famously said and it, it was important in his role as a diplomat but I think it's important as our role as surgeons that it's always better to have options thank you for that can you talk to us briefly about the steps of the operation and what, as residents, we should look out for? So in this situation, I would, I would probably approach this now through a, a T2, so-called VATS approach. We do it with three small uh, incisions, and depending on if there's a thymoma, this patient has a three-centimeter thymoma, depending on where that thymoma lies, either to the right or to the left, that'll, um, that'll inform me on which side to to go from. I think it's important to be able to be facile with both sides depending on where the, the uh, index lesion is. Uh, so we do, I, I start the operation um, with actually a, uh, the patient in the um, modified lateral decubitus, a little bit uh, um, rotated with the back down because we're going to be operating towards the front. We make our incision uh, five millimeter incisions just, uh, the first one is just 
uh, in front of the scapular tip uh, and uh, that serves as a camera port. The, um, I start with a varus needle and insufflate some carbon dioxide. I use airtight ports to allow for carbon dioxide gas insufflation which help, helps with the dissection. It's something I learned uh, from Michael Mack, uh, an excellent thoracic surgeon in Dallas. Um, at the time, and uh, after the varus is in and we obtain a, a pneumothorax, uh, induce that pneumothorax, then I place the 5 millimeter port, and then with the camera in we can place our other ports. I place another 5 millimeter port just below the hairline in the, in the axilla, um, usually it ends up being the, the third interspace, and then uh, one centimeter or 10 millimeter port where we will take out the specimen down in the sixth inner space, space anteriorly. I used to try and get it to increase the size of the triangle, the triangulation of these ports down lower, but uh, the port wouldn't allow me to get high up into the neck, so we, I've increasingly moved that port up to the sixth inner space. Um, through that, occasionally we need a fourth uh, five millimeter port if the lung doesn't deflate sufficiently and, and, stay, and keep, allow us visualization of the phrenic nerve. So we start on the lower pole, we lift it off, and I think the key piece is to stay on the, the, the interface between the thymus and the pericardium. Uh, we want to complete that dissection off of the pericardium first before um, addressing the thymic uh, attachments retrosternally. Um, you want to deal with the bottom of the drapes before taking the drapes off of the rod. Uh, it just allows you, the, the, the thymus is held up by its retrosternal attachments and doesn't flop into your face as you're trying to work off the pericardium. So do the back part of the posterior dissection first and, and, and really be sure that you're done with that before addressing the, uh, the more anterior attachments. So we carry our dissection up to the, the, the point where um, you have the innominate vein and there will be draining branches from the thymus to the innominate vein which I typically manage with clips. Um, it can be managed I think as well suitably with uh, harmonic dissection uh, or um, sometimes they're small enough that electrocautery will do the trick but I typically do it with clips. Um, and, and that allows you then to move up beyond the um, the innominate vein level into the neck where you dissect out the ipsilateral pole all the way to its most, most uh, cephalate extent. And that, um, the vascular attachments up there can often be managed by electrocautery and you don't need to clip up in the, in the neck. The ipsilateral superior pole is dealt with, then the contralateral superior pole is dealt with we carry a dissection over to the other side uh, on the uh, surface of the pericardium and the innominate vein to the point where the, the gland releases on, uh, from the pericardium. At that, and then carry a dissection down along the contralateral lower pole. It's only at that point that I start to address the anterior aspects of the, the thymic attachments uh, in the retrosternal uh, area. And that becomes a more simple approach because there's less uh, issues that you can injure. The only really thing that can get in your way at that point is the, uh, 
the, the mammary vessels or the mammary vessels. Um, one of the things to address is getting into the contralateral pleural space. Um, I don't know that you need to do that. Uh, we try and avoid it, but if you get into it, it's not an issue even with gas insufflation. You let your anesthesiologist know that uh, they may feel some increased uh, uh, ventilator pressures, airway pressures, but uh, it's typically not an issue. One of the nice, and, and then once the, the gland is completely dissected out, I do put it into a bag and bring it out through the, that lowest port, which is about a centimeter. Sometimes if there's a, a thymoma, we'll have to extend that incision uh, anteriorly a little bit uh, to be able to get it out. But I do put it in a bag so that there's no issues with port site contamination or disintegration of the, of the gland. Um, one of the nice things about this is if you can do it cleanly and without uh, significant uh, uh, bleeding, and you can avoid a chest tube because you really haven't touched the lung. Even if you do get into the uh, contralateral uh, site, um, at, the, at the end of the procedure, you give some positive pressure as you close the last port and see the lung come up. And, uh, and it's typically something where you don't need a chest tube, even to drain a, pneumo, a residual pneumothorax, because that resolves fairly quickly uh, with the uh, uh, carbon dioxide uh, dissolving out uh, in the, in either pleural space. Uh, the nice thing about not putting in a chest tube beyond the, 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 the removing that aspect of pain for the patient is it removes that aspect of pain for you deciding about when to take it out. Sounds good. Thank you. Let's say that a final pathology shows an encapsulated thymoma, Mazaoka stage 1 and WHO type AB. How do you follow these patients post-op? And does the final pathology ever change your time frame or subsequent studies? So this is a stage one thymoma, and that's the best case scenario. I do want to emphasize the fact that a stage one thymoma is a malignancy. There's, a, there's an unfortunate misnomer that was carried through, even in the Oxford English Dictionary for many years, but thankfully has been recently corrected, that uh, a thym where they, they stated a thymoma is a benign tumor of the thymus gland. A thymoma is a malignant tumor of the thymus gland, and a stage one given time will become a stage two or a stage three. Uh, and, uh, and so a stage one is a completely encapsulated gland, and typically that those patients don't need any other treatment other than follow-up. Um, I tend to um, uh, espouse the, the, the philosophy that, uh, that Dr. Joel Cooper had of following patients until death, theirs or yours. The most follow-up uh, is important uh, at an increased cadence early on, uh, and as, as the patients go on, you can increase the interval of time, and now with video uh, allowing for patients not to have to travel to get that follow-up, but you can uh, often ob obtain the same necessary information and follow-up by video, it, it's, it's created an ability to really maintain that contact with your patients, and which I think is important. So in this patient specifically, I would typically see the patient back at six weeks with a video. Uh, and, you know, it, the nature of my practice is that, I, that the median distance of my patients is about 500 kilometers. So making them come back for that first, often anticlimactic, but very important visit uh, is, is mitigated some degree by, by doing it by video. We have them have a chest x-ray locally to make sure there's no residual 
plural space or interparenchymal issue. Um, and uh, and I, I get a report back from their local family doctor in terms of physical uh, exam and, and, and local issues. But um, we follow up with them at six weeks, make sure that the, they've recovered from the, uh, the surgery. And in a case of a stage one thymoma, we'll probably repeat a, a CT scan in, in one year's time to make sure that uh, there's no issues that are uh, continuing. And then maybe every two to three years, uh, either follow up with their neurologist and we receive reports of that, continuing that follow up, or follow up with us by video. Um, and then as the time goes on, the interval between visits uh, increases. Perfect. Now, Trocassidy, uh, to conclude, do you have any final thoughts or advice for residents out there? Well, stay with it. It's tough times right now with uh, COVID that's, uh, and, and the other and many other important uh, societal issues that have come to the fore in the last, uh, last little while. I really want uh, the residents to, you know, not to lose heart. This is a really great profession that allows you to directly, materially, and, and, and physically help patients. Uh, myasthenia gravis and, and thymic uh, issues, mediastinal issues in general, are sometimes passed over because of the um, grandeur of pulmonary disease or, or esophageal disease. but. Uh, the mediastinum um, is an important part of our practice. It's enjoyable practice, and so spending a, uh, a little bit of time, and perhaps even more than a little bit of time, to understand it well and to integrate it into your practice, I think would be uh, advantageous. So thanks for this opportunity, Rafael. I, I enjoy mediastinal, uh, my mediastinal practice, and. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's another way of helping patients uh, with uh, sometimes otherwise poorly understood uh, conditions. Perfect. Thank you again, Dr. Cassidy, for being here with us today.